You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome to TFM's local watering hole for all things geeky, and I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me, as she is every single week, Christy Morrison. Christy, you gotta come with me right now. You gotta do something about your kids. Oh my gosh, what's wrong with them? Did they become jerks or something? No, no. Well, yes, that's why you need to come with oh man um we're gonna have so much fun this week as uh we're gonna be talking about the back to the future series and of course that means we need to go back to the future with the original amen yeah i was so excited when you decided we should talk about the series of them because actually it came up uh recently in conversation between the two of us that I just saw the second film for the first time this year because they added all of them on Netflix. So nice. Yeah. But this one is on. Yeah, I grew up with. It's so funny because, yeah, just I mean, I had never seen the second one. I'd seen one and three. And so, okay. uh, you know, not too long ago, I think probably about a year and a half ago, we watched two uh, and so, yeah, th- it's the 35th anniversary of Back to the Future. So we, uh, you know, it was coming out on 4K. I got the set and I figured it's a perfect Aww. time to talk about Back to the Future uh, because we never had. And of course, you know, we don't have any movies coming out. Uh, in fact, they just recently removed um, Free Guy from, which is disappointing because I was really looking forward to seeing that. That movie with Ryan Reynolds looked look so good. So, yeah, not much coming out. Uh, hopefully, maybe that'll change. Who knows? But um, we've got some great films to talk about over the next three weeks with Back to the Future. So, of course, uh, to make sure you're getting the episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, hit us up with the star rating review. Of course, we're all over the place, though, like Spotify, uh, Amazon Music. I mean, anywhere you can get your podcast, you can find the 602 Club. And um, yeah, help us grow. Share us. Find us on Twitter at the 602 Club. We would love for you to follow us and interact with us. Christy and I have a great time talking to people there. Um, and yeah, I mean, the more you uh, follow us, interact with us, the more people will find us too. So uh, you can also find us on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM, so follow us there as well. We love interacting with people there too. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trackfm where you can find everything the network is doing, plus the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group there on Facebook where you can talk to listeners from all around the world. And, of course, track.fm is our website, and we've got all the podcasts there that we do in the network listed, plus there's the contact section. So if you wanted to send us an email, you can do that as well. I wanted to say a huge thank you to our associate producers here uh, through Patreon, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Ryan Millette, Daniel Noah. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. It means so much to us. Uh, honestly, folks, um, we could really use your help. You know, um, 
it's been a crazy time for everyone and and for us as a network as well. And without your support, we can't keep these shows coming to you. Uh, and it'd be great to raise that number uh, that we've got coming in every month by quite a bit. Um, and so go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can be part of the team. Every little bit helps. There's some great contribution levels. You could be an associate producer of a show. Uh, there's a lot of other things going on. So again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. So Christy, we were <laughs> we were laughing beforehand, which I feel like we did basically an after dark episode uh, before we recorded <laughs> the show, which was a lot of fun. But we were kind of laughing about this idea of that I you know, we we do an outline for the show to just kind of help us keep the topics that we want to talk about throughout the different movies. And one of the things I was so fascinated by was that this movie was rejected many 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 times uh 40 times to be exact that studios rejected this script because they couldn't see the time travel working um and also uh, this is what really struck me and so i want to talk about this with you uh they didn't consider it raunchy enough to uh, compete with the comedies of the time so that would have been like animal house or blazing saddles meatballs mash 10 porkies fast times at ridgemont high or just a a, a few that you know would have been huge from the 70s into the early 80s and so i, I for when we look back we probably th- we think about ourselves this is crazy like why would they reject this for this reason i mean i, I don't know i don't i don't really get it like uh, to me it seems very strange that we say oh um uh, i guess the the the, I, the I guess maybe at the time the conventional wisdom like is a comedy needs to be super raunchy to make money. Mm -hmm. Which is hilarious because if you look at all the movies that came before the 80s, there were plenty, tons of films that were incredible without needing that. So it was kind of silly that suddenly that became the thing of, well, if it's not raunchy, it's not good. Or if it's not raunchy, it's not a good comedy. So, you know, it's kind of sad that that was a big criticism of the script for even making it. But I think, too, it obviously, if you look at especially that documentary back in time where they talk about the baking of this and everything, too, um, originally the story wasn't as fleshed out as we see the final version in the movie. So maybe that was part of it, too. You know, it it started from, um, you know, wanting to see if someone would have been friends with his father when they were both young um, and, you know, traveling back in time kind of started from there. But not everything was ready story wise, like I said, that we see in the final product. So you have to remember that when they're passing this around, trying to get it made. But two, it just it it had to go through a lot of changes to get to, you know, the time machine even becoming the DeLorean. Uh, you know, it started out as a refrigerator, <laughs> believe it or not. Yeah, you know, I, I do think that that's really interesting and, and kind of something that um, I, I was, um, you know, mentioning to you, um, you know, it, it seems strange. Like these days, of course, because uh, we've talked about this before we started recording the idea that like if, if like something is on HBO, you know that it's going to have nudity in, in, in it probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, you know, sometimes it's necessary in the shows and, and it, it and, and it furthers the plot. And sometimes it doesn't, you know, uh, and it, it's just unnecessarily and they're just using it for titillation. Um, and so 
but you know, it reminds me of sometimes that uh, less is more. So I always think back to the the fact that uh, Mad Men got turned down by HBO, and, and of course didn't get made by them. It got made by AMC, uh, the network, and of course you know they were on a basic their basic cable, so they can't do that. And I just always remember you know um, Christina Hendricks who played Joan talking about how she was kind of thankful that that happened because the the story telling had to be much more subtle when it came to its themes uh, and, and especially the sexuality that portrayed, um, mm-hmm. and that she was thankful she didn't have to be topless every other week. Um, so I think. There's something really interesting about this idea that at that point, they just didn't feel like you could make a comedy and have it be successful unless it, I guess, has boobs in it, which, you know, I I, I get that being a thing because so many of those films at that point were were popular because you basically had teenage boys going to this one place that they could, you know, pay five bucks and or, or I guess less at that point, but see boobs. And, and it just seems yeah. weird that that would be the one of the big reasons that they would reject this. It just seems so strange to me. Well, we're forgetting, though, the other reason that initially it was rejected was uh, Disney, for example, had looked at the script and said that they were uncomfortable with the fact that the mother hits on her son. And I can kind of understand that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think I think that's one of the I mean, the story definitely and, you know, it, what's interesting is it, it skirts some lines, but it just never veers off into a completely uh, uncomfortable place, you know? Right. Uh, and and so um, it never takes anything really too far. If anything, honestly, you know, I would say this is a movie where it's like there's some cursing in this movie that you wouldn't necessarily get. You would definitely not get in a PG movie anymore. You right. Know? Um, so, you know, but you know, PG and PG-13 and all that stuff are different way back then. So especially since PG-13 didn't exist until Temple of Doom. So, um, but I, I thought it was really interesting too. You mentioned that this is a, that the movie itself was based on that question of like, would you, you or and your parents be friends if you were in the same school together back in the day? And I think right. that's a really interesting question because I think many of us have kind of wondered you know, about our parents and what it was like growing up. And, you know, um, do your parents really tell you the whole truth about what they were like when they were your age? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, how much did you end up becoming like your parents personality wise and with your mannerisms? Because Marty realizes Mm -hmm. that he's a lot more like his dad than he thought. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean... I don't know if you've ever done this, but like where you look at a picture of yourself and then you look at a picture of your mom or dad and you're like, oh, wow, I look a lot more like them than I thought I did. Oh, yeah. Oh, I totally had that moment looking at my mom's ninth grade yearbook. Me with long hair and braces. (laughs) We look exactly the same. (laughs) That's funny. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Um, Well, it's interesting, too, that, you know, uh, Robert Zemeckis, uh, he ends up directing Romancing the Stone, which becomes a huge success beyond all expectations. And that really gives him the credibility to, you know, bring back to the future to life. Um, And he's able, you know, with Spielberg's help to make this. And with the help of Spielberg and Amblin Entertainment, 
you know, it becomes something that just ends up taking on a life of its own. And, and in many ways, you know, when we think of the Amblin movies from the 80s, oh, Back yeah. to the Future may be the most quintessential Amblin movie of all time, possibly. I mean, you know, I know there's E.T. and, you know, I know, you know, there's Goonies and stuff like that. But I feel like this might be one of the high watermarks for that studio of all time still. Oh, yeah. I'm with you on that. I, for me, it would be the top of all of theirs. But definitely that was like a, an era growing up that I look back on so fondly is all the Amblin movies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and 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 like it's so interesting because in in many ways, like I can see why people, you know, like the studios, if, if they were thinking that they wanted to, the movie to be in like a Fast Times at Ridgemont High feel you know, this movie isn't that at all. I mean, it has that, um, there is kind of a wholesomeness about it, even though some of the subject matter is, um, you know, like you said, <laughs> with his mom and, and everything like that. There's some of that there. But really, I mean, there is so much kind of classic Americana and like mm-hmm. just down home good storytelling having a having fun at the movies that all of those amblin movies kind of bring to light the best ones make you feel that you know there are some movies these days where they 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 give you that feeling it it feels like an amblin movie i mean we've even talked about that before um with some of our our reviews but this is where that comes from, you know, like there there is a, a certain style and tone that those Amblin movies had. And I mean, Back to the Future has that feeling in spades. Yeah, like, well, and it, it, what comes to mind for me with that that gives it that feeling, too, is it has the ideal American way of life represented. Like when people think about what America is all about, you ideally would like to have, you know, the nuclear family that all lives together and gets along well. And, you know, they're doing okay financially. And, um, you know, they're able to go out and do fun things together. And so it's really cool to see that they are embracing that and making everyone come along with them. You know, it's something that even if we don't have, it's something that we think, you know, wow, that would be nice. And it just kind of makes that, you know, have that warm, fuzzy feeling. I, I think if if anyone has done any, you know, research or, or watch any behind the scenes stuff, you know, they wanted Michael J. Fox like Zemeckis wanted Michael J. Fox and the studio didn't want him to have Michael J. Fox and never allowed the script to get to him because they were too worried about family ties, which is a huge hit at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they end up choosing Eric Stoltz, um, who's cast, and they film a ton of this movie with him, a, a majority of this movie with him. And it just, it doesn't work. Like, the way he's playing the role doesn't work. Um, there's a ton of drama behind the scenes. He's kind of being method the whole time. He's taking the role way too seriously in the sense that they didn't want somebody to... um they they wanted that kind of manic presence that Fox is in the first place, you know, th- to be much more lighthearted with it. And he's mm-hmm. just not giving them what they need. Uh, and so I just to me, it's one of those things where I think it's almost like Providence stepped in 
and was like, no. Like, right. <laughs> God from heaven was like, no, Eric Stoltz is not meant to make this movie. <laughs> you will regret it. No, I, <laughs> this is, this is not the way. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, when I first learned this from watching the documentary, actually, I was kind of shocked because one of my other favorite movies actually is some kind of wonderful that stars Eric Stoltz. So you can see him in a, in a movie that I think he was really suited for versus this, where it's like, he just, even in that movie gives off a very serious vibe. And I think he's good at that, but this was not the movie for that kind of actor. And so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You needed somebody like Michael J. Fox who was going to come in and ad lib sometimes, which they said he did because he was trying to film Family Ties and this at the same time. He lost a lot of sleep. And so, you know, I think that you needed somebody, too, that would come across on screen like that scene where, uh, you know, Lorraine is leaning in to kiss him and he's squealing and, you know, squirming away. Eric Stoltz wouldn't pull that off the same. No, I mean, I, I think you're right. You know, I I think the idea that this could have been somebody else is just crazy. I mean, just even re-watching the movie. I mean, this movie is Michael J. Fox. Yeah. It's all about him. It's all about his performance. It's all about the energy he brings to the movie. He has this sense of understated cool, right? He's because, so cool. Right. But, it, but in the film, it's this understated cool because he's not really the coolest kid in school. You know, yeah. he's not the one that everybody looks to. He's he's a little bit more like his dad than he would like to be. He's the one who's getting picked on. Um, he's the one who uh, isn't necessarily really willing to take the chance. You know, um, he, wants he hangs to out be... with Doc Brown. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, I think that it's really interesting to watch the way that he plays the role and he brings it to life in a way that I just, nobody else could have. And obviously Eric Stoltz was never going to be able to give this type of performance, but truly, and, and, you know, there are a lot of films that rest on the shoulders of their star, Mm -hmm. but this movie is about Michael J. Fox being Michael J. Fox and, and doing what he does best and and I really do think, you know, that kind of that, that idea that they had for him, they wanted this kind of manic energy, you know, somebody who just is a little bit frazzled and can play frazzled really well. Um, and, you know, he's cool enough under pressure, but you can tell he's just kind of like, I don't know, there's something about him, just the way he moves and the way he talks and just everything about him works in this movie. And, and so in the end, you know, this movie... If 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 not for Michael J. Fox, I really just don't think. I mean, I can't even imagine it really working without him. One hundred percent, it I, it wouldn't have worked without him because it's so about, like you're saying, the mannerisms in particular to Michael J. Fox that nobody could repeat that he brings to some of those scenes are perfect for this kind of character. And sometimes you just have something like this that happens where you have a character needing life. And somebody like that that come together and it's just magic. And that's why this movie is so rewatchable even. And, you know, you have some really iconic things that have made it people's favorite movie. In many ways, it kind of reminds me of the way that, you know, like Harrison Ford brought Indiana Jones to life. 
you know, like mm-hmm. Harrison Ford above and beyond anybody else. I mean, it, it, other people could play the role, right? Mm. But I don't, it would never be the same, you know? Or Han Solo. Or I mean, Han Solo, even though I think Aaron Allreich did a great job in, in Solo, I think he was mm-hmm. fantastic in the role. And luckily, he's playing a younger version of the character. So right. it's yeah. it's not quite as difficult to, to, to make that believable. Um, but, you know, I, I think there are just some people who in, embody the essence of what it means to be that character, and they are completely that character. And nobody else can really fill that role in that way. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, you know, it is a blessing that, you know, they were able to get Michael J. Fox to actually do the role and I mean, it's a big deal because, you know, they have to refilm scenes and they added four million dollars to the budget and they they reshot most of the movie with him, you know, uh, and, and not only that, but I mean, it literally changed the casting for other roles because um, Stoltz left, you know, and so I think that's that's cra- kind of crazy to think of as well, you know, that um uh, they had to they had to change other roles because you know he didn't work out and so um but yeah i mean i don't know what else we could say other than the fact that legitimately this movie wouldn't would never have been the hit it is and it has continued to be if michael j fox had not had this role um and it, and we are very blessed i think and just when I think of, of like film accidents, you know, film felicity that we get this happened, that this, that, that this worked out the way it did. Um, so because this, this movie is iconic and it's, it's that way for a reason. And it's that way because of, I think Michael J. Fox and the way he plays off the rest of the cast, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, like Christopher Lloyd playing doc Brown, you know, I mean, there were a lot of people in contention for this role, uh, anywhere from like Jeff Goldblum to John Lithgow. They actually kind of really wanted John Lithgow for a while. Um, and, you know, they 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 get Christopher Lloyd to play the role. And I just he's another one where everything that he kind of does for the role, uh, I think, works really well Um you know, just from the way they do his makeup, especially when he's older, to kind of give him that Albert Einstein look, um, mm-hmm. to the fact that he works very diligently to, like, hunch his posture. He's 6'1", and Fox is 5'5". Five five. So the fact that you never feel like Christopher Lloyd, especially as an the older character, is that much taller than him is insane. Um, yeah. So... I mean, again, he is just, he's iconic. I mean, that's really, Doc Brown is iconic. Everything he does from saying like great Scott to his, just his mannerisms, the, the, I think he feeds off the manic energy that he gets from Fox when they're in those scenes Mm -hmm. together. And it really does feel, (laughs) forgive the pun, but it feels electric, right? Right. Well, and he, 
For one, Christopher Lloyd, if anybody's ever met him, he's also just one of those people that's got that manic energy and is a little off kilter. And it's so funny because, it, you know, what you would think are the most successful actors or whatever, you usually think of the quote unquote pretty people. But it's mm-hmm. it's some of the weird people that <laughs> really get a lot of work and do it so well. And he became Doc Brown. And he's so for one funny uh, I think my favorite quote from the whole movie still is when he says uh, there's that word again heavy what is something off with the earth's gravitational pull in the future yeah <laughs> yes you know and, uh, heavy that has, this has nothing to do with weight <laughs> so yeah it, there's a lot of things like that that are iconic even just about Doc Brown and I think that they really make you see how close and how much time Marty and Doc spend together so that mm-hmm. then when Marty knows that he has to warn Doc that he's going to die, you're feeling that like the emotional turmoil between them. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And, and you know, there's something really quite beautiful, I think, about their relationship. And, you know, um, one of the things that I was really thinking of uh, just in terms of the character is the way in which, um, you know, the character of Marty and the, and the character of Doc Brown, you know, Doc Brown is kind of like this crazy effervescent, you know, person. And he's really trying to, to, to create something. And, um, you have, uh, Marty in the same sense, like he's, this crazy effervescent person who's trying to create something with his music. Like he wants to do something. He wants to go somewhere. He wants to, to, to be bigger. And I think one of the things I kind of realized at the beginning of this movie is, you know, the, the movie is all about, you know, wanting to um, take risks and everything. I've talked about a little bit later, but I, I think one of the things I noticed is that I get the feeling like the reason that Marty hangs out with doc Brown it's because Doc Brown is the only one in life who kind of pushes him really towards his dreams other than his girlfriend. And it's mm-hmm. like that male role model who's helping him like, you know, Doc Brown is somebody who's not afraid to chase his dreams. He spends how many years trying to invent the flux capacitor, right? Because right. he knocked his head and he had this vision of this thing. He totally believes in himself and he's never given up on the dream of doing what he wanted to do. And I think in some ways, Marty is feeding off that energy because it's the only place he gets it. He's not getting it at home. That kind right. of um, positivity of like, do something, try something. And so I think one of the things that I really like is that Lloyd and, and Fox bring that out in the in, in the movie, even though it's not ever like, I mean, it, it, it's never really... Uh, explained in the movie why he hangs out with doc brown Mm -hmm. um other than the fact that you know when he goes in there and he turns up the amp and he's like you can tell that him and doc brown have been working on this for a while right you know yeah and and like so again there's this relationship there's this camaraderie between these people where you have this older guy and you have this younger guy and he's kind of the only one who's really helping marty kind of try to pursue any of the dreams he has. Um, and I think there's something special about that. I think that's why that relationship really works. And and the other reason is, is that it's just those two people together. And I think they really hit it off. And their chemistry is 
off the charts in the movie. It's so good. And he's still one of my favorite characters, period, much less, you know, out of the two of them in this movie. Um, I think that, too, I need to add, I, I have met Christopher Lloyd. Nice. At Dragon Con a few years ago. And uh, I was dressed as Catwoman. He hit on me. Well, I mean, that's understandable. So, so yeah, I don't blame him. It was fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, for anybody who who doesn't has not seen what Christy looks like, it makes sense that Doc Brown was hitting on you. So, <laughs> yeah. So, um, it's the same reason Jason Momoa picked you up. You know, when you're yeah. dressed as Khaleesi. Because so. I'm just so you have adorable. a lot of in- yeah. You have a lot of like connections with really famous people hitting on you. So, well, that's not to like. I okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> this is not a we love Christy podcast, even though we do. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, Doc Brown is great. Uh, so, I have a question for you, and I think this is really interesting for me because, um, how do you feel about Leah Thompson uh, as? Lorraine. I thought she was really great. I think that especially toward the end, it's so funny seeing, you know, especially thinking about her from the standpoint of you're hanging out with your mom and seeing that she's not the angel that you might have thought when she was younger and, you know, they're in the car and she's drinking and then also smoking and he just spits everything out and he's like, you smoke too? And she's just thinking, you are such a loser. (laughs) I, uh, and I think she made it really believable that, of course, she wouldn't know who he is. He's just some guy that mm-hmm. her dad hit with the car, and she's never had a guy in her room before. Um, But, you know, then you're thinking it from Marty's standpoint. It's so creepy and uncomfortable and awkward, and he's just can't wait to get out of there. So, it, but I think, too, even them doing the makeup on her to make her look older in the beginning, you really can believe okay you know like as we age obviously some things change about our face mm-hmm. but i i really loved her in this and it, you know she's just one of those that when you've seen her with the right actors it's so beautiful yeah i i think um for me i would say I feel like honestly, both of her parents are not my favorite parts of the movie. Um, I, I might be in a minority on that, but I don't love Leah Thompson's performance in the film. I feel like, hmm. um, I don't know. There's just something about it. She's, um, maybe she feels like every everything she says is kind of like overly breathy, um, and um. I get the uh, her trying to play the awkwardness of the whole situation, you know, in her bedroom and everything. Um, it it seemed a little bit strange because later in the movie, um, I felt like you know she's much more um, forward, uh, and so it seemed a little strange that she was so shy at the beginning. Um, I, mm. I you know. Uh, I don't know the whole, it just it's never it's never worked for me the way I feel like they want it to in the role. Um, but I don't think she's bad or anything. I I do really enjoy her uh, when she's um, older, you know, and there's the way she plays the role where she's this dejected kind of like 
<laughs> she's not very happy. But there was a time when she was, you know, there was a time when she remembers why she had, you know, met this this man and why mm-hmm. she had married this man. And and so that there was a time that she she did feel um you know, again, she there there was happiness in her life, and so um, I, I think that part that she plays a little bit better than I. I just I don't absolutely love her performance um, at the when when we're back in time in the in fifty five. So I get that a little bit though. Like I guess I chalk it up to well, the scenes are designed to be awkward, and you know she's this high school girl with a mm-hmm. serious crush on a guy, she's going to say things like, what a dream boat, you know? Um, but I can understand that. And I think, you know, that kind of, uh, what I was really interested in was learning that Crispin Glover, who plays George Big Fly, uh, that Zemeckis was unhappy with a lot of his performance choices, which makes sense to me because I don't love his performance choices either. I feel like they're so over the top. Um, and I, I think part of it, it's, it's, it's classic now. Like it's just, it, it just what is what the movie is. Mm-hmm. But, um, I would say for me as well, that the two weakest parts of the movie are his parents. Um, I think he plays the role much better at the very end of the movie when you come back and he's much more confident person. But I think he just overplays so much the ineptitude. It's like nobody's that bad. Like I, I get what you're mm-hmm. going for this, this, you know, leave it to beaver 1950s picked upon person, um, you know, always the butt of the joke and everything. But it just it's to me, it's too much and i think it may be the one of the reasons that i could never rate this movie five stars okay well and i yeah i guess i do understand that a little bit because there are definitely scenes where you feel kind of um impatient that his talking is going on for so long uh you know Mm -hmm. i think that i think that there are times where it seems like it's overdone to make him seem like the butt of the joke but I think, too, it's just become something that I think of as that is George, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 And it was funny because I was kind of surprised as well to see that Zemeckis didn't like it because to me, for the most part, it does feel like what I would think of as how George is supposed to be. Um, You know, the way that they make him come across as a character. I do think that Crispin Glover was still the right casting choice. But uh, I will say my only complaint for him was that I I didn't feel like he and Leah really had chemistry together. You know, like, I think they yeah. make it work. But ultimately, when you see them kiss, you're not like, oh, you're just kind of like, hey, well, it's a weird guy kissing that girl. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think uh, that's something that um, I, uh, a, I guess a problem with the movie, just its structure anyway, is that uh you know, they never are going to spend enough time together for you to feel like they have too much chemistry. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think, again, they kind of pull it off much better at the very end of the movie, you know. Um, so it, it's it's not a that that scene with them together when they're walking in um, is is pretty good. Um, yeah. And so uh, and, and just the way they're able to act together and they feel like they've been 
you know, married forever and, and comfortable with each other and obviously still very playful in their relationship. So that all works. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, to me, they're, they're just kind of the, uh, the, the, the part of the movie that, that I, I don't know, I'm watching it for Michael J. Fox and yeah. for Lloyd. Like they're just, a, you know, the side characters. Now, Thomas Wilson playing Biff, I mean, you know, they, yeah. they thought about Tim Robbins playing him and everything. Um, and uh, I think it really works. You know, I, he is fantastic in the role. He he plays it so well. You hate him so much. And that's exactly what you want from this role. Uh, and I love it. Um, and I even love, too, that, you know, he's the classic bully in the end that nobody would stand up to and it to. And it's not until George, you know, just completely decks him that, uh, he, his life is completely changed. Right. You know, because mm-hmm. no, uh, if that had never happened, nobody was ever going to stand up to him, you know? And, and, and so I think he, it, I, again, when it comes to like iconic roles and the right person playing the role, I mean, he nails it. Yeah, and I think too, I even felt like they were saying, um, in a way that this, there's this theme. If you don't stand up to your bullies or take a risk, what is your life going to be like in the future? Yep. Yeah. Because they definitely show that juxtaposition of George McFly's life and how Biff treats his wife compared to before and after this happens. So, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, I, th- I think he absolutely, like you said, embodies Biff so well. And this really kind of launched his career. And, of course, you know, he's in the sequel, um, at least the second one that I've seen. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he you do hate him. I think especially when he's the younger guy, you really get that from the dialogue too, not just the body yep. language, but you know, when he says like, what are you looking at? Butthead. It's just stuff like that. They're like, yeah, bullies would say that. Yeah. You know, he is, he's such a, just a jerk, you know? And I think he, he's, he's so good at being the jerk. Um, now, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the fact that, you know, uh, Michael J. Fox comes in after Stoltz when they had cast Stoltz, they had actually cast Melora Hardin, uh, and they even signed her to a two-film contract to be his girlfriend, to play Jennifer, um, which is fascinating because, you know, she's on – everybody, I think, knows her now from The Office, you know, and and so playing uh, Jan. And so popular, so well-known. I, I mean, she's also – I don't know if you know this. She was the, She's the singer at the nightclub in The Rocketeer. She's actually on the soundtrack. She sings a couple of songs, you know, so she's very talented. Um, of course, Malara Hardin's beautiful and everything like that. But when they cast Fox, when they replaced Stoltz, she's taller than him. And so everybody, all of the female crew overwhelmingly voted that Marty should not have a girlfriend that's taller than he is. So they replaced her. Uh, and I just think that is interesting. Um, that, you know, that was a consideration. Um, so they bring in Claudia Wells to play the role. Um, and of course, you know, I think she does, you know, she does a great job there. I mean, it, again, that's not a huge role, but I do think it's just, it, to me, it was fascinating to see how the change in actor had such an implication on then, 
you know, who was going to play his girlfriend. You know, and it kind of makes me sad, the reason for the change from Melora Hardin, because it kind of reinforces that feeling that I've heard other guys tell me before that they don't want to be shorter than their girlfriend because it comes across uh, emasculating and, you know, because it's like they're not the dominant one in the relationship. But I think that, I mean, it just depends on the person because there are definitely guys that are shorter than their girlfriends out there and they don't care. So... (laughs) I think it's a little sad that maybe that was the only reason, but I do think that Claudia does a great job. And it's kind of funny if you check online, Claudia is one inch shorter than Michael J. Fox. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, um, there, I, he, he is definitely not a very tall man. And so he's a little bit like Tom Cruise in that, that way, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's going to be a little bit difficult to find people that are that much shorter than, than they are. So, um, but no, I think she does great. I mean, she's great in the role. There's nothing wrong with her at all. Um, I'm with you. I do feel like it's a little bit sad that, that, that that's the case. I almost feel like, um, and, 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 and I could make this argument that Marty would never be with somebody that's taller than he is as he is then, because that would, he would have that, that would, I mean, regardless of whether you think that's right or not, but I feel like he would feel that way. You know, Mm -hmm. um, he would just be uncomfortable because he wouldn't have the stones yet to to be with somebody that's taller than he is, especially with the way people might treat him then because of that. Whereas Mm -hmm. I think afterwards, you know, if you saw him with somebody that was taller than he is, that would make a little bit more sense um, because he would have had the confidence to just be who he wanted to be and not allow anybody to, to tell him, you know, what he should be doing or, you know, so. Yeah. Um, if that had been a story point, that would have been kind of interesting. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, she's she's good in the role. And and we were we've kind of mentioned this idea, but I love that this movie to me really is about the theme of, of risks and rewards. And the fact that if you're never willing to take any risks in your life, you're probably going to have very few rewards in your life um, and mm-hmm. that you can't just play it safe all the time. And and and, you know. Knowing then the wisdom of when to take the risk and when to play it safe are are really important things, but you'll never accomplish or be what you could be if you just never take any kind of risks. And that's really what we see in this movie. We see that with his parents, you know, um, and the way that he kind of changes his future because he helps them take some risks in their life uh and i thought that that was really cool and it's a great message because this movie isn't saying you can be whatever you want to be but it is saying you can be the best you yeah and being the best you means taking risks uh at some points and so that's a really good message and that even i felt like the whole time doc was trying to teach marty not only about that but just in general of never stop trying and trying new things and you know like he doc had such this zest for life about him and that you know dreamer looking to the stars let's make humanity better kind of personality and so he's trying to inspire marty to not just accept the status quo but to try and be something different Right. No, I think you're 100% right. And and that's one of the things I think made their relationship so special and, and why I think they, like I was talking about earlier, why they're friends. Like, he, you know, Doc Brown is the only one who's kind of showing Marty what it's like to live a life where one takes a risk and is one is willing to 
pursue the dreams that they have. Um, and I think rightly so that it's a dream that's absolutely actually someday attainable. Like Doc Brown's obviously a genius. Like, you know, he's not trying to be a male model, right? You know, again, <laughs> right. it's not about trying to be whatever he, he want, uh, he dreams that he couldn't be. Uh, it's about having dreams in, in light of the reality of, of the gifts that you've been given and how you can utilize those. What do we see that, you know, in the end, his parents end up being like his parents become successful. His dad has actually decided, you know, like he's successful in business. He's become an author, you know, because he's willing to take the risk of, of being told, of being rejected. And I think that's the biggest lesson is like, you have to be willing to be rejected if you want to be great at something, you know, um, and and you have to be willing to take your lumps and, and learn and grow um, in that and, and learn from failure. You know, in the end, most of the time, failures are our biggest teacher. So um, what we saw is parents were never people who were willing to fail uh, until, you know, this fateful moment when they're son comes back and almost ruins all of their lives but in the end <laughs> helps them you know find better lives so yeah uh, no i definitely you said it and i think too kind of goes along i i you were mentioned this earlier but i thought it was really funny this kind of like we do get a little bit of this movie that gives us perspective where he starts saying lines that his parents would say to him back mm -hmm. to them you know like you're talking about in the car and i just thought that was so funny because it's a microcosm of so many people are like, they're ne I'm never going to be like my parents. And then what do they find themselves doing to their own children or at some point in their life? They end up saying things just like their parents or doing the very same thing that their parents did. Um, and, it, I, and I'm not saying that in a bad way, but I mean, right. just like, you know, I just think that part is really funny. Yeah, I think especially that they have Marty say, and then later you hear his dad say, I just don't think I could take that kind of a rejection. <laughs> I think it's so funny. Because yeah, I mean, that's just kind of reality. A lot of times, our parents do rub off on us in some way. And it'll come out sometimes in things like the things we say or our mannerisms or things that we like. Um, like my dad loves Jimmy Buffett music. Therefore, I do. But um yeah, I think I think that that was a sweet thing to see, and that, like you're saying, in in the good ways, maybe that's not such a bad thing. Uh, it it makes me think of those uh, commercials right now where the uh, the life coach who's helping people who become their parents, you know, oh, yeah. um, which that's what it makes me think of. But it, we we can make those kind of you know commercials. We can see this kind of play out in a movie like this because there's a there's a truth to it, which is very funny, which you don't know until you get older, right? You mm -hmm. just don't. Um, and then it happens and you're like, oh my gosh, I've become my parents. So I, I, that perspective is nice. Um, and, and what it really, I think in some ways kind of allows Marty to be able to do a little bit is just kind of see things from his parents' perspective, you know, like he's in their shoes almost, you know, because he's older in the sense that he knows the future. He knows what's supposed to, you know, like in the mm -hmm. same way that our parents, they've lived longer, you know, like it just, it helps create that understanding. So it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, 
I think one of the things that stands out to me in this movie, I love Alan Silvestri's score. Uh, I think he does such a fantastic job of making kind of this all-American sound to the score, um, something that he'll do really well, of course, when he scores Captain America. But um, that combined with uh, Huey Lewis and the News is brilliant. Like, I love it. I mean, the power of love, fantastic. Um, You know, I, um, I just, I love it. I think it's so great. Um, everything about the music and the score in this movie works completely for me. Yeah, and it was interesting to hear, too, that uh, The Power of Love was something that Huey Lewis was working on, but then ended up becoming the theme song for the movie. Um, you know, that it, it wasn't actually produced and out there until the movie came out and people heard it in the movie. So I thought that was really cool. But it's super catchy. I think that obviously a lot of people really love Huey Lewis in the news and they were really popular around this time too. So Dude, who it was a good love Huey Lewis in the news. I know they're so fun. They are so fun. No, I a hundred percent agree. Yeah. They, they also did the song back in time for this, which you hear at yes. the end, um, which is also great. But yeah, I, I think that the music in particular with this movie is so inseparable from the movie. Mm-hmm. I think that definitely um, Silvestri did a great job with the theme for, um, you know, just the score itself of that. Da, 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 da. It's so heroic, even sounding, speaking of Captain America. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And, and in fact, you know, he l- legitimately said, you know, he wanted something that was recognizable within a few notes. Uh, he wanted it to sound heroic. He wanted it to have that small town charm as well. I think he basically wanted it to sound like Americana, you know, like this kind of beautiful feeling of, of, of patriotism and like, you know, the joy of the, you know, the, the classic 1950s, you know, that's what we're going to go back to. And, and, um, so I think it's excellent. And I love too that, you know, like, Zemeckis really wanted Huey Lewis to write a song for specifically for the movie. And Lewis is like, I, I don't know how to do that. And he's like, okay, just write mm-hmm. whatever you want. And that's how you get the power of love. And then he ends up acquiescing to Zemeckis by giving him the second song written specifically for the movie in the sense that it's called back in time, mm-hmm. you know? So I think that's really fun. Um, plus, you know, Eddie Van Halen does the gu- guitar riff when Marty wakes up, George is Darth Vader. So, which is really, really fun. Um, so, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's really interesting that, uh, I, I was reading, you know, Van Halen said no to being in the movie at all or using their music. So Eddie Van Halen just did that part all on his own because the band didn't want any part of the movie. So, mm-hmm. I mean, they're lost, honestly, which is hilarious because he is the band. Uh, this is true. This is true. I mean, the band is nothing without Eddie Van Halen. So yeah. may he rest in peace. Um, yeah. So, but um, sorry, I did want to add into the the other thing about music in general. Um, I thought that it, the two biggest things that stood out to me for Marty relating to music in the movie is him um, having a band and um, the beginning playing the giant amp that blows out. Yes. Yeah. It's a scene that everybody loves so much. I love that they film little scenes 
before they actually ever show his face of him turning the volume all the way up. Uh, and you're going, oh, no, this is going to be bad. <laughs> it's just insane. <laughs> and then him playing Johnny Be Good every time I get up and dance. Yeah. No, it's great. Well, and I love that it's Ch- Chuck Berry's brother who right. calls him. He's like, I found that sound. So, yeah, that's perfect. Um I got to say, too, you know, for I think they had eight weeks to do the effects by the time the movie uh, got to that point. And I even watching in 4K for the most part, I mean, the effects really stand up in this movie and look great. I mean, the whole movie, actually, I was I was surprised just how beautiful it looks in 4K. So the the work they did to restore the movie and just and, and the presentation of it is is bonkers. Like it looks fantastic still. Well, that's good to hear because I haven't seen it in 4K yet. But yeah, it, it was fascinating to read and see in the documentary too all of the things that they did to make like the uh, lightning. Apparently, that was the um, I think it was like the brightest lightning ever on film or something because um, just haphazardly it ended up that the camera was too close to the light effect they were creating <laughs> oh gosh for the clock tower scene so when that lightning strikes it really was a, a huge moment um and I, I think it the thing that really stood out to me with the effects is how they use the practical effects of the tire tracks lighting on fire mm-hmm. every time that the car takes off looks really cool but also um i learned you know obviously they had some safety issue with possibly doing that with their two main actors standing on the flaming treads so they had superimposed them later they didn't actually make them stand in fire yeah yeah and and i mean those are things that you can kind of tell that are the case but i think the beautiful part of it is that i mean it really does it still all works you know i mean i think mm-hmm. that's there's such like you were talking about earlier there's such a charm to this movie the effects uh, you know they work really hard to make them hold up and and i think they still do for for the majority of them and and when they don't it's like who cares you know it, it's 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 not like it takes away from the movie in any way, shape, or form. And I think mm-hmm. that's a testament to the fact something that, you know, is kind of wrapped up. This movie is a, a classic now. And I think, you know, as we've talked through it, everything we've mentioned for the most part, it makes sense why this is a classic. I think this is one of those movies we talked about earlier. Like, there's such a feeling of joy you get watching it because there's such a... It's all about what makes the best of life, right? Like learning mm-hmm. that you could be more than you thought you could be, learning to take the risk. Like it's all the classic messages in such a fun package that makes this movie just, I mean, so rewatchable. And I think it's the reason that obviously it led it to having two uh, you know, sequels. And, you know, you've got all sorts of other things like video games and theme park rides. And I mean, like, this is this is an incredible uh, movie, and it'll be interesting then, you know, as we go through the other two, to just see, does that continue, you know, through each of them? And mm-hmm. one of the things you mentioned here on the outline is, like, you know, they've said they'll never do another sequel. And I I think that's good. I, I personally yeah. believe, you know, um, we could probably have saved that part of the discussion until the last movie, but... I, I think it's good that they would never I some there are just some movies that just don't need any more sequels. So I think this 
creates a nice trilogy and there's no need for any more. Well, and yeah, I, I respect them for being willing to say, we're not just going to try and go for a cash grab to make another movie because of that. We're going to say that we feel like the characters and the way that we wrapped up the narrative is has come to its natural end. And we're not willing to tamper with that anymore. You know, I think that there's we've all seen movies where we thought, man, did Land Before Time need that many sequels? <laughs> you know, I mean, there's yeah, there I is, think, uh, there's so many movies like that. Yeah. So I think that sometimes people have to be willing to say that even the this movie didn't necessarily need a sequel. It could stand on its own, yep. but they leave it open to the possibility. And then we come to get two more. So, right. Yeah, so it'll be fun as the next couple weeks we talk about those. We can't wait to get to them. Uh, but Christy, as we come down to where we'll rate the film, what do you rate Back to the Future? Five out of five stars because it's just one of my favorite movies of all time. I actually watch it fairly often because it's just something that gives me that warm, fuzzy feeling. And I love the music and adore Michael J. Fox. And especially, I will add, um, you know, seeing him going through living with Parkinson's. And that's something that my grandmother had as well. I feel like, you know, that's something I really understand and really admire him for his strength going through all of that. So um, I think that it's a testament to how incredible he is that this movie got so many awards and has become such, I, I don't want to say a cult classic, but just a film classic in general. Um, yeah, it, it's amazing. Yeah, I you know, I think you're absolutely right in saying that. It, this is not just a cult classic because it's not. You know, it is a classic in in every sense of the word. And, you know, for me, as I mentioned earlier, there's just some things that I could never give this movie, I think, more than four stars. But that's not discounting that I don't still think this is a classic. It's not a movie that I haven't even come to appreciate more and more as I've watched it. Um, I think it really... It it does seem like a movie any to me that almost gets better with each rewatching rather than less. Um, and part of that I think is just because of the heart of it, the fun of it, and so totally enjoy uh, Back to the Future. And yeah, I'm really excited to you know talk through the other two in the series and and see how, where we land on those. But Chrissy, it is that time of the show where we give some recommendations. So I'm wondering what you want to recommend this week. I want to recommend a documentary this time. Speaking of documentaries, no, I'm not going to talk about back in time, but uh, I do want to recommend a documentary I saw recently on Hulu called crazy about Tiffany's. Um, there are parts of it that can be a little off putting, um, but I would say for the most part, it's really interesting to see the history of the company um, and especially how it became a part of the movie breakfast at Tiffany's with Audrey Hepburn and um, just all of the, the interesting things about them, like how they own that color blue of their boxes and their branding and everything. It, it is actually Tiffany blue. It has a specific Pantone name and everything. So yeah, it, I think it's fascinating, especially if you like breakfast at Tiffany's the movie, I think that you would really be interested in seeing all of these little Easter eggs about the company and how they've come to be such a an icon in America. 
No, that's awesome. Um, I love a good documentary like that. It, it's so much fun to learn um, new things about a, uh, a, such an iconic. I mean, yeah, you're right. Tiffany's is one of the most iconic places, honestly, in the world. Mm-hmm. So um, I, uh, I'm i going to recommend something really fun this week. And um, it is this book called, and I'm showing Christy, even though you guys won't get to see it, but it's The Lightsaber Collection. And it's just so cool. Um, I have always, I mean, ever since the first time I saw Star Wars as a kid, uh, like many people, I was entranced by the lightsaber. And I can't get enough of lightsabers. And I just wish lightsabers existed. Uh, and since they don't, um, I I have to just enjoy looking at them. And this book is so cool. It has incredible uh, renditions of all of the major lightsabers that we see in Star Wars um, from the prequels all the way to the sequel trilogy. Um, and that includes um, all of the animated work as well. So it's just so neat. It's just so much fun. It's really well laid out. Um, it's a beautiful book. Like, if you've got a Star Wars fan in your life, I'd say this is the perfect book to, to like, uh get them for Christmas, um, because they'll love it. Um, yeah, it's, I've, I've looked through it a couple of times already and, um, it's just, it's one that I'm, I'm enjoying just kind of, oh man, that lightsaber is really cool. And, and the, the illustrations in there are really gorgeous. So if you like Star Wars, uh, if you know a Star Wars fan, this is definitely a book worth picking up just so you can peruse lightsabers every once in a while and, and read about them. So, yeah, that's what I'm going to recommend this week. But, Chrissy, if anybody wants to catch up with you, where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And I am occasionally in the Babel Conference on Facebook, too. And if you'd like to find me on uh, the network, obviously I'm on the 602 Club every week with Matt. But aside from that, I'd also do a show called Sabers and Spells with my friend Teresa Delgado, where we talk about anything from Harry Potter to Stranger Things to My Little Pony. Who knows? But uh, I hope you'll check that out uh, at Sabers and Spells on the Skywalking Through Neverland Network. And uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, under the name MattRushing02. And then, of course, I'm here on the network doing literary treks with um, Chris Jones, as well as The Orb. Uh, literary treks is about the books and comics of Star Trek. And then The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, and then over on the Nerd Party Network, I do two shows. One is called Owlpost, and I do that with Dre Kaufman. And we're talking about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time. And then last but not least doing aggressive negotiations with my good friend john mills that is a star wars podcast and every week we are having a blast just talking about a new star wars topic but thank you so much for joining us and y'all come back now you hear